the single-use plastic involved, it is incredibly environmentally problematic. I do think that perhaps we as consumers need to say, in January, I'm not making blueberry pie. Hello and welcome to the Age of Plastic podcast. This is an environmental podcast using that gateway fossil fuel that we must divest from, plastic, uh, but everything is interconnected. And so today's show is going to all be about food. Plus, on the way, my good news story and my guilty consumer moment of the week. First up, though, do I want to live on turnips or whatever is currently in season where you live? I think it's turnips here in the UK. At the start of last month, I spoke with General Manager John Rosser at Weaver's Way Co-op in Philadelphia in Pennsylvania. Now, Weaver's Way is a member-owned cooperative grocery. So if you want to find out what a food co-op is, what Weaver's Way is aiming to do, the tiny percent of food that we have to grow to make a big difference... And what to keep in mind when food shopping to lessen our waste. We talk a lot about organic fair trade bananas on this episode. Strawberry pavlova comes up quite a bit and blueberries in winter, plus climate change and farming. Now, I know nothing of the geography of anywhere, really. So for my benefit and for yours, if you like me, here's John Rosser talking about the geography of the area around Weaver's Way Co-op in Philadelphia and Pennsylvania. Philadelphia is uh, on the northeastern seaboard of the United States, uh, basically in between New York and Washington, D.C., the most densely populated corridor of the United States. Um, So Philadelphia is just one of several big cities um, along this corridor. The interesting thing is that despite the urbanism, it is... uh, especially here in Philadelphia, we're fortunate that we are surrounded by a pretty awesome green belt of farms and orchards within 150 miles of metropolitan Philadelphia is really a bounty of agricultural infrastructure. And the state of Pennsylvania uh, has done actually a really good job, uh, one of the better jobs in the United States when it comes to promoting and supporting organic agriculture. Uh, And actually, Pennsylvania has the second highest amount of organic produce being produced in the United States, um, second only to California. So I would describe Philadelphia as a big urban city, densely populated, but also surrounded sort of by happenstance by a really great green belt of of ag. And... You firmly believe that strengthening local food systems are paramount to the survival of this planet. So why is that? I believe that the pandemic really drove home this point in a way that was visible for those of us paying attention before the pandemic, but is now, I believe, completely obvious that the big sort of national and international food systems that were built in the post-war era in the second half of the 20th century, which we have all been part of, for better or for worse, we've all played our role either as growers or retailers or consumers, that system is inherently unsustainable. That system is remarkable in its ability to get food into the hands of people all across the world. We should acknowledge its remarkableness, if that's a word. 
Um, but it is also highly problematic when it comes to its environmental impact, its reliance on fossil fuels, its reliance on pesticides and herbicides, its reliance on single-use plastics. It is inherently unstable. And the pandemic, at least here in the U.S., and it might have been the same in the U.K., but here in the U.S., the pandemic nearly broke that system. At one point, there was um, considerable worry that a lot of the meat packing uh, plants and a lot of the poultry packing plants uh, were going to have to shut down, and that could have thrown the whole system off. Uh, we were fortunate in this case in that the system barely held together. Most of the supply chain issues were, for most of us, little more than an inconvenience, but it exposed the danger. Uh, that, uh, you know, we might not get so lucky next time. And so the bottom line is, for me, the best solution, regardless of where you live, is to reestablish a commitment to the local food shed, whether that's, whether that's Philadelphia or London or Manchester or wherever, there exists, all these cities were built primarily supported by the farms that were within a relatively easy distance to be able to get to those centers of population. And, you know, globalization has made those local systems less essential, but in reality, they need to become more essential for us to be sustainable. So here in Philadelphia, it's really about how can we ensure that that awesome green belt of agriculture that I was talking about is supported primarily by the people who live here in this in the urban center. You've brought up COVID-19. I think that's very true that we've had supply issues here in the UK. It's kind of made everyone realize this whole just-in-time method, which, which we're hearing about here in the UK, is if any one thing goes wrong, it doesn't work out for us. We also have other issues around Brexit, and that's a whole other separate issue. But as you say, everyone's eyes are focused on these kind of food supply issues that you've known about for years. So let's get into the Weaver's Way co-op then. How do things work differently at Weaver's Way? What's what And what is a co-op for someone listening right now who maybe doesn't know? Sure. So Weaver's Way co-op is a locally owned group of natural grocery stores here in Philadelphia. And uh, we're a consumer cooperative. So we are owned by our members and we are organized as a cooperative enterprise, meaning it is open to all. Anyone be can become a member owner of the cooperative and no one individual can own any more of a share of the business than anybody else. So it's all equal ownership uh, and it's democratically controlled. Here at Weaver's Way, our cooperative is 10,700 member households. They elect annually a board of directors and the board of directors is the representative body of the member owners of the business. And so they are they become our governing body. That the board of directors doesn't run the show, that the board of directors hires me as the general manager. And then my colleagues and I are responsible for, you know, turning on the lights and working the cash registers and stocking the shelves. Um, from a consumer perspective, walking into a Weaver's Way and shopping doesn't look a whole lot different than walking into any other kind of natural grocery store. You see a lot of the similar products and um, the shopping experience is the same. We have a deli, we have a meat and seafood counter, we have a bulk department, etc. So in terms of how we're different, 
I think that the, the starting point has to be is we have to acknowledge that as a food retailer, we are part of that system that I just described that is inherently unstable. And so we are therefore part of the problem. And we need to acknowledge that because how we are different is how we are trying to change the system from within. We're not trying to propose any kind of radical change where we all suddenly stop shopping in grocery stores and we all start just growing our own food and homesteading. That's great for people who choose to do that. For a lot of people, that's not really a practical solution. So how can we change a system that is unsustainable environmentally from within? Uh, and so how we're different is really the acknowledgement that we need to look at every single aspect of how we have traditionally conducted our business, whether it is how we heat our buildings, to the fuel we use to power our trucks, to primarily how can we reduce our dependency on single-use plastic and make incremental changes to that. And probably the most important aspect of this is to get the member owners of our co-op to recognize that the real change has to occur at the consumer level. The real change has to be each and every one of us has to make modifications to how we buy groceries in order to be more sustainable grocery consumers. We had our little veg box delivered today. We use something called Odd Box here in London, and they basically take surplus from farmers, maybe their contract with the supermarkets come to an end, whatever. So we never quite know what we're getting, but they've literally sent today, how ironic, um, a stat about food waste. And I know this is kind of past the chain for you, but I just wanted to bring this up as you mentioned the consumer angle. Do you think, considering that food waste, I'm looking at the stats here, it would be the third largest contributor to greenhouse gas emissions after only China and the US, do you think we have lost some respect, some value for the skill of farming? Yeah, it's it's funny. We we operate our own farms, um, and they're urban farms uh, in an urban setting. So we're not talking about you know massive massive farms, but we do operate uh, two farms here in Philadelphia. So some of our produce does come from our own farms. And one of our uh, farmers, uh, one of my colleagues who is a farmer by profession, you know, she's particularly keen on the fact that every single year, more and more of us become more dependent on fewer and fewer of us who are actually in the business of farming. And we have very much so lost touch with the ability to, um, or just the basic understanding of being able to grow our own food. And for her, the solution is really, she's done some research on this that I, she's, she understands this issue better than I do. But basically, if even if we could take 1% of our caloric intake and grow that 1% ourselves, how fundamentally beneficial that would be the amount of strain it would take off of this system that we've developed for ourselves, it would be profound. And, and that's not an unachievable goal. Uh, even for people living in urban settings, we know that uh, from history that people, when compelled to do so, can grow their mm -hmm. own food. I mean, you think of the victory gardens that sprung up in the UK and the US uh, during the Second World War as like the classic example of that, like 
you can do your part in the war effort by growing just a portion of your own fruits and vegetables. And this is how to do it. And, you know, regardless of whatever plot of land you have, even if you have literally zero land, you can have some containers where you can grow. And so, yeah, I do think that it's a worry when you're talking about consumer waste. Part of it is that we as a society have this disconnect between ourselves and, and where our food actually comes from, the earth. We definitely got into this on another episode with Sally Nex about plastic-free, low-carbon farming. Um, and that's so interesting. 1%, I'm just thinking now as someone who has zero land, John, zero land, but I do have a balcony, um, that I have been reading at Sally Nex's book, which again is more about gardening, but it would be possible for me to grow maybe some salad leaves and have them in rotation in a pot on our balcony during some months. But I wondered as well, when it comes to consumers, what would you recommend to consumers who aren't able to grow their own? What should they be looking for when they go and shop for groceries? Well, sure. So there's there's tons of stuff. I think that, I mean, as, as a starting point, when the discussion of whether or not to buy organic versus conventional produce comes up, usually the context in which that discussion is, is how it's beneficial to us in terms of nutrition. It's, it's better for us to eat organic food as opposed to conventional food. And whether that's true or not, for me, it's really about it is better for the planet that that food was grown organically because the, the land in which that food was grown was not treated with pesticides and herbicides. So as a consumer, buying organic is an important environmental consideration. Little stuff like, you know, bringing your own bags to the grocery store, which, you know, you see more and more now. People are pretty comfortable with that. We should remind ourselves that 10 years ago, that was a foreign concept. So, you know, that's a pretty good advancement like that, that now even um, some of the older folks that come shopping at the co-op, you see them walking with their, with their empty bags, you know, like, all right, that's progress. In terms of reducing food waste... I think that one thing that consumers can do is consider concentrating on buying in bulk departments where you can purchase food in smaller quantities more frequently so you're not producing a lot of food waste. And you can do that using your own, at least here at Weaver's Way, you can do that using your own packaging so you don't have to use uh, single-use plastic containers. A lot, So much of our, our food is packed in. Uh, when you shop in a bulk department and you bring your own containers, you're ensuring that the, the amount of food waste that you are going to generate is going to be lower because you're only buying what you need. Uh, you don't have to worry about buying a, a package of something where you're worried that by the time you consume what you're going to consume, there's going to be leftovers that's going to spoil or whatever. So I think that, yeah, those are the big things, concentrating on on eating organic for environmental reasons, and then uh, consider modifying your, your shopping practices to buy bulk. And the other big thing is, you know, also supporting the local economy. In almost all cases, if you're buying a product that was grown or produced locally, there is less of an environmental impact because of the, the the reduced fossil fuel costs. Those food miles you touched on as a lot of people sometimes when we have this discussion about you know sustainable farming, one of the things that people who criticize it say is, well, we can't feed everyone that way. 
In your experience, is that the case? Do we need monocultures? Do we need these sort of traditional ways of farming, I suppose, chemicals, lots of plastic prepackaged food when it eventually gets to us? Yes. Well, so I'm not an expert when it comes to farming. Um, so I, I, from what I've read, certainly there's, um, there's a case to be made for these sort of large scale agribusinesses that need to produce the amount of food that we, that billions and billions of people need to sustain themselves. Whether that's true or not, I'm not in a position to be able to say. As a retailer, I'm pragmatic about these things. And so I do recognize that um, while I I am a firm believer in the in the need to strengthen local food systems wherever they are. I also recognize that consumers are who they are, and I'm I'm no different. You know that, and and so whether it's a need or not, there is certainly a desire for for consumers to be able to have a lot of choices when it comes to what they buy, and and local food systems are limited in that respect. Here in Philadelphia, for example, there is just no such thing as locally grown bananas. Uh, or or locally grown <laughs> citrus fruit. So, you know, that stuff has to come from further away. And it's, as a retailer, I'm not going to say to consumers, well, you can't buy bananas at Weaver's Way because uh, because they're not part of the local food system. So therefore, you, you, if you take bananas as an example, you recognize that there are inherent environmental consequences to transporting bananas from where they are grown to where they are consumed. And there's economic benefit all along the supply chain there. Uh, so long as workers are paid a fair wage for the work that they do, and all of our bananas are um, fair trade certified for that reason, because there's been such a long history of worker exploitation in the banana industry. But you can sort of say like, okay, we recognize the inherent environmental cost of this particular food chain, the banana food chain, what can we do to mitigate those costs so that we all can, whether we're in London or Philadelphia or wherever, we can have our bananas because we all we all eat bananas. <laughs> so true. And I've literally been editing a podcast today and banana peels came up a lot in that podcast as well. I don't know why they're so popular <laughs> on the Age of Plastic podcast at the moment. We can't stop talking about bananas. Yeah, I love a banana. And you're so right. We would get scurvy, I think, here in the UK if we were to try and uh, produce all of our own produce because we're not getting any citrus fruit in our climate either over here in the UK. Hey. If you want to email a brand but don't know where to start, you can now download a template from my website. It is a handy form that helps you email a company or business and ask them to use less plastic. This is an easy copy and paste. Fill in the gaps and ask that brand about their sustainability goals. Just head to iamandreafox.co.uk to download. You say it's no different for anyone coming into a Weaver's Way co-op. But what's the sort of cost implication? Because you do say it's the people who shop there who um, who own it, essentially. So what's what sort of cost are we talking? Because that's another big issue that comes up when we talk about organic farming and we talk about, um, all the, you know, kind of farm shops and things like that. Um, does it exclude people maybe who are, aren't able to afford those kind of products? Yes, uh, I, I think this is... Um we have to build a workaround to that fact. It is almost always the case that when you are talking about an or organic alternative to a conventional product, 
or when you're talking about supporting a small food grower or food producer, that the food cost is going to be higher than a conventional alternative. And so we have mm-hmm. to accept the fact that we will never be the cheapest place to buy groceries, especially when you start talking about, like we, we're talking about bananas and all of our bananas are fair trade certified and organically certified. And we feel really good about that decision, but that absolutely necessarily means that our bananas are going to cost more money than bananas that you can get Mm. elsewhere in the marketplace. And you can talk all you want about fair trade and pesticides and herbicides. And I could go on and on about this subject, but the bottom line is when you're on a fixed income, when you have a limited amount of money to spend on food, 99 cents a pound bananas at Weaver's Way doesn't matter whether it's a story or not. I can get 59 cents a pound bananas at at my local Walmart or wherever else. And I only have a certain amount of money that I can spend on food. So so how do you address that? Because we don't want to be a retailer that caters exclusively to people who have the resources to be able to buy more expensive food. For us, the experiment is in cooperative economics, our cooperative model, where we say, those of us who are in a position to be able to pay more should pay more. And those of us who are in a position where they need to pay less should pay less. And so we've set up the system. Uh, we have a program called Food for All, where members of the co-op can get 15% off their purchases by joining this Food for All program. It's a needs-based program. So if you're in Food for All, you're getting 15% off the shelf price of everything. That program is subsidized by other members who participate in a Roundup program. So members who are in a position to be able to do so, every time they shop at the co-op, their receipt gets rounded up to the next highest dollar level. And that money uh, that they're contributing goes to the Food for All recipients. So this is this is an exercise in cooperative economics where we're saying like, yes, we recognize that in order to make sure that farmers and food producers are are paid a fair price for their product, the shelf price here at the co-op is going to be more than the lowest price alternative in the marketplace. And this is our way of trying to make that more affordable for people who aren't in a position to be able to pay that retail price. You also do, talking of like giving back to the community, you have your uh, mock the food moxie. Uh, as well at Weaver's Way, which is a way of teaching people how to work the land. Yeah, so Food Moxie is a, a, the, the our nonprofit is called Weaver's Way Community Programs, and they they do business as uh, Food Moxie, and so it's a it's a registered nonprofit here in the United States. And uh, what they do is they do a lot around education of gardening and urban farming, nutrition and culinary arts. It's really, and I'm, I'm talking basic culinary arts. I'm not talking about how to be a, um, a Michelin chef. I'm, I'm talking about like how to Gordon uh, Ramsay. how to cook your own food at home so you don't have to rely on the microwave dinners that you can get at, uh, at a grocery store, which are loaded with sugar and salt and preservatives and all that stuff. So yes, Food Moxie is our educational nonprofit that's dedicated to making consumers, grocery consumers, uh, more educated regarding issues related to food. 
I'll leave all the website details uh, wherever people listen to this podcast. But it's a it's a lovely thing to to get involved in and have as as part of the Weaver's Way Co-op. And uh, we touched on plastic. Obviously, this is a podcast quite a lot about plastic. You are trying to keep plastic, which we know is so harmful to our soils, to our oceans, out of circulation. You are partnered with TerraCycle as well at Weaver's Way, haven't you? We have partnered with TerraCycle. Uh, TerraCycle uh, is a is a business here in the U.S. Uh, I don't know if it exists in the U.K. or not, uh, but it, here it does. Yeah, it does. Okay, so yeah, that's TerraCycle is um, committed to um, removing from the landfill waste stream a lot of the stuff that is not recyclable through municipal recycling programs. Municipal recycling programs, when they work well, and they don't always work well, but when they work well, they're removing cardboard and paper and aluminum and and single-use plastic from Mm -hmm. the waste stream. At least theoretically, they do that. TerraCycle takes it up a notch for consumers that are interested in removing some things that would otherwise go to landfill. And that's everything from toothpaste tubes to Brita water filters and batteries and all kinds of stuff like that. Yeah, it's just another one of those really interesting companies, I think, isn't it? That's that's stepping in where waste removal is is just failing us. Now you are uh, the general manager of Weaver's Way Co-op. I feel like I should ask you, what is your favorite produce that you have available at the moment for anyone listening in the state who wants to come by? Not organic fair trade <laughs> bananas. <laughs> um, so my, well, my, my, uh, we've got awesome uh, broccoli rob right now. Uh, and it's my favorite uh, sauteed broccoli rob. I could I could eat that for dinner. Um, and uh, yeah, sauteed broccoli rob and a, a glass of red wine, and I'm a happy guy. Um, so yeah, our our produce. Um, we actually just went through pawpaw season, which most people don't know what pawpaws are. Pawpaws are a fruit that is indigenous to the Northeast United States. So um, it is one of the few fruit trees that can thrive in our climate here. So we just went through pawpaw season. Uh, that was a great product. It's uh, unfortunately the window is really narrow uh, and it's a highly perishable product. So it's already in the rearview mirror. You know, here in, in early October, we're, we can see the end of our growing season. Our farms will stop producing food over the course of the next month and uh, locally grown produce will vanish from grocery shelves, including our shelves, in a couple of months' time, with a few exceptions like apples and that sort of thing that, you know, hardier fruits that can be sustained for a longer period of time throughout the winter season. But for the most part, locally grown produce ends in the next couple of months here and won't pick up back again until April, which is another consideration regarding, okay, like, well, so where do our fruits and vegetables come from in the dead of winter here when it's cold and you can't grow stuff? Uh, and so that is where, again, it gets back to like, okay, if we recognize that we have to have these systems to get food into the hands of people, regardless of where they live, regardless of the time of year, how can you clean up those systems to make them more environmentally sustainable? As consumers, should be we wanting to make strawberry pavlova at Christmas, you know, like, 
having a bit more knowledge of what is available locally and seasonally, as you say, I think could could be really, really powerful for people, couldn't it? Absolutely. I think this is this is something that we don't acknowledge enough. And I, I like to give I mean, that's an excellent example. Uh, I, I like to give the example of blueberries here in Philadelphia in the dead of winter. Um, blueberry season here is um, mid-June to mid-July. And during that one month period of time, we get awesome local blueberries from South Jersey or some of the suburban counties here in Pennsylvania. And it's super local, super awesome, and relatively inexpensive stuff. But in January, the blueberries that we sell on our shelves, they came from very far away. And this is, this yeah. is again, what we were talking about before, we have to recognize that as a, as a retailer, we are part of a, of a system that is inherently problematic. So if you're buying blueberries at Weaver's Way in January, you know that those blueberries came from incredibly far away. Most likely in our case, that's South America, uh, Chile or Peru. And you think of the environmental costs associated with getting those blueberries to a port in South America and on a ship and through the Panama Canal and up to the port of Philadelphia and then unloaded and sent to a warehouse and then from the warehouse to the co-op and then from the co-op to your home where hopefully you eat them or <laughs> uh, worse, they wind up getting thrown away. Uh, it's sort of appalling. Yeah. And if you think about you know the, the fossil fuels involved, the pesticides mm-hmm. involved, the single-use plastic involved, it is incredibly environmentally problematic. And mm-hmm. so, yes, I do think that perhaps we as consumers need to say, you know what, if I live in Philadelphia in January, I'm skipping the blueberries. I'm not making the blueberry pie. And uh, that's a hard thing for consumers to have to make, the, a hard choice for consumers to have to make, but not an impossible one. Yeah, and I think that is interesting. It is it is a hard decision. I mean, as you say, with all of that all that chain to get those blueberries to you in January, it's gonna be more expensive. You're in an area, have we had wildfires where you are right now or any extreme weather systems where we're talking to you right now? Yeah, the, so we're here in the Northeast United States, we uh, we do not experience the wildfires other than the smoke from the wildfires, which are uh, out West, uh, that does um, come across and it creates haze uh, wow. on certain days for us. But otherwise, we, at least for now, we've been spared the wild wildfires. Now, our issue here is more related to the climate change issues that we experience are um, uh, longer and hotter summers. And so here we are, it's October 7th, and it's almost balmy out here in Philadelphia. It's, it's, it's humid. We're getting tropical air. It's, it is it is peculiar. Uh, Mm -hmm. And so that is part of it. And more rain and more storms. Uh, We actually had a fairly large tornado hit suburban Philadelphia within the last month. And, you know, tornadoes were always uh, viewed as something that happened out in like the central plains, you know, Kansas or whatever. That's where Tornado Mm -hmm. Alley was. But here, lo and behold, in southeastern Pennsylvania, we had a tornado. So the the weather here is, is definitely changing. We don't have to worry about droughts. We are actually getting more rain than normal. Mm. That does influence our decisions when it comes to uh, how we tackle some environmental issues. So, for example, for us, because we live in an area where water is not an issue, we can 
pivot and concentrate, for example, on taking out single-use plastic items and replacing them with returnable items that are either made out of glass or made out of multi-use plastic that can be washed over and over and over again. That's a viable solution for us in Philadelphia, where in other parts of the country where drought conditions exist, extreme drought conditions exist, that might not be a viable solution for them. We are also experiencing more extreme weather. It's been really, really warm here recently and also incredibly wet. We've had floods in London and balmy temperatures just like you in October. Um, Yeah, so that's that's an interesting correlation and a depressing one, but (laughs) there we have it. Um, I really appreciate your time today. We always ask our guests two questions and we've got to that point of the podcast. We are the Age Plastic podcast. I do have to admit that plastic has its uses. We're just using it in completely the wrong way. Um, So is there an item in your life that contains plastic that you are really glad exists? I'm guessing maybe the reusable plastic you've just mentioned at Weaver's Way. But what what would you go for? I tend to say my record collection. Although I'm sure we could make that out of something else, right? Right. There's an issue. There's an article in this week's issue of the Economist about uh, how the uh, the shortage of plastic is impacting the vinyl record business because the vinyl record business is booming. Um, it is. And uh, but they can't get their hands on the plastic that they need because the demand is so strong. So yeah, there's a, there's a partnership for TerraCycle, isn't there? <laughs> with all the old crisp packets they're collecting. That's right. Um, no, I, I, I think that um, plastic, you know, we, we tend to uh, lump it all together, but I, I do believe that there's a fundamental difference between single-use plastic and multi-use plastic. And I'm, so I'm speaking to you right now on a, on a laptop that's, um, that weighs just a couple of pounds, uh, which is great for my backpack when I'm biking to work. And, uh, you know, so the, the light weightness of this laptop is primarily due to its plastic construction. And uh, so um, that makes my life easier because I don't have to lug around something that's 10 pounds. Um, so, yeah, I think that for me, there is a pretty clear distinction between the plastic that's used to make my laptop or to make your LPs uh, versus the plastic that we use that just gets discarded. And again, under the best of circumstances, it's getting recycled and turned into an LP or turned into a laptop. Uh, m- most likely it's it's being incinerated or, or landfilled or it's worse, it's winding up in the ocean. Yeah, yeah, completely, completely. It's that that downgrading of all that single-use plastic. Imagine if we did not have that in the system, it would be amazing. Um, final question as well for you then, John. Your environmental hero, please. Who is it that you really look up to and admire? Yeah, so I you've learned from? I gave this question some thought because I was given the heads up you were going to ask, oh, man, my environmental hero. But <laughs> I actually, I have a really obvious answer, and that is the co-op has this amazing group of people. It's our environment committee, uh, who I met for the first time 12 years ago when I joined the co-op and I attended the uh, uh, monthly environmental committee meeting. And this was the first time I was being exposed to any of this stuff. And they came across as, as foreign to me. Like they were talking about things that I was just like, wow, they are really out there. The thing that they were talking about at this first meeting that I ever attended was they wanted to remove the paper towels from our bathrooms at the co-op 
uh, which we're actually not allowed to do for Philadelphia Health Department code reasons. So the so we were not actually able to do that. Uh, but they were like, you know, they had all these statistics around the the use of paper towels in public bathrooms. And instead, they wanted to replace our paper towels with a sign that said, pants dry, give it a try. Uh, meaning, <laughs> meaning after you're done washing your hands, you dry off your hands with your sleeves or your pants. And I'm thinking, man, these people are out there. Uh, but the truth is, is that they, I've gotten to know them now and they really are my environmental heroes because they are just regular people who have found regular people ways of living highly sustainable lives without having to make dramatic changes to how they actually live. Uh, it's not, again, they, they don't have to go into the country and become homesteaders. They can still function as regular sort of normal people, uh, but they've made all of these lifestyle changes in every aspect of their life. And as a result, their own carbon footprints are zero. And, uh, and so they really are my heroes because they show all of us the way that we can live environmentally sustainably without having to to cease being part of a functioning normal 21st century society fun fact my gran used to dry her hands in her hair you can have that tip for free i'm gonna go and check when pawpaws are in season in the uk big thanks to john russer from weaver's way i've actually put links in the show notes to not only weaver's way um, but also lists of food co-ops in the UK, in the US and Australia. So let me know yours if you have any more to share and I'll add them to the show notes of this episode. I made a point in this episode and I made it so badly I cut it out. So I'm just going to quickly say it here. We talk about difficult consumer decisions. But without meaning to be all doom and gloom, climate change is going to make force, I should say, force us to live slightly differently. So why would we not choose you know to do something slightly differently that's much much easier than having to move because our homes are flooded i don't think i've made that point any better but there we go i'm leaving that in funnily enough i did recently see a thread in the comment section on a newspaper of where to move to to avoid climate change spoiler it's everywhere climate change moving's not going to help also so many people were like oh isn't that really selfish like do something about it but I do sometimes have those little moments where I'm like, could I just go and live in a cabin in the woods? <sighs> if you agree with me that you sometimes have those moments too, let me know on the socials. And yeah, let me know where you would move as well to avoid climate change. <clears throat> no, don't do that. We're not doing that. Okay, good news, good news. Does this count as good news? I think it does. Three young activists in the UK are taking the government and our prime minister to court over the climate crisis, claiming that it breaches human rights acts to life and to family life by failing to prevent environmental disaster. I'm going to find out whether this is going to get a full hearing, but if you want to read more on this, it is in the show notes as always. Now, on to my guilty consumer moment. Blueberries came up a lot today. I have blueberries in the fridge. It is November here in the UK. They have definitely been on more travels than I have in at least the past two years because they've come from Peru. Yes, they came from Oddbox, but it's mad to me that they've come all that way. And then someone was just like, yeah, probably not going to sell them. Also, annoyingly, we've got some avocados, probably also from Peru, from the odd box, and we forgot to eat them. And I had to throw them away. I hate doing that. 
Um, I just feel like whose job is it though to remind us what's in season in the UK of the food miles, of food waste? D- do I need? I kind of need reminders every summer of what the rules are in cricket. So maybe I do need constant reminders of what's in season. Maybe I do need to pull my finger out and learn what's in season in the UK in the UK. Is that on me? Is that on producers? Is it on supermarkets? Is it on all of the above? Let me know answers on a postcard. FYI, that Frankfurt trip, I was going to go and see my friend, mentioned it on a previous episode, that's off. If you want to find out why, just Google the COVID news in Europe. Anyway, big thank you to John Rosser from Weaver's Way. I will link to the Sally Next episode, which I think I accidentally said was about low-carbon farming. The Sally Next episode was actually about low-carbon gardening. Going to link to that in the show notes. As always, wash your filthy hands and your recycling and wear a mask. I'll see you next week. 